It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, and thanks for being with us all week long. We're going to be joined by Benjamin Hole in just a moment. He's traveling with Secretary Blinken, who is just uh, uh, wrapping up and in the middle, or in the middle of, I'll find out in shortly, of uh, meetings with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia, trying to avoid what everyone believes will be an, an imminent invasion. Uh, and David uh, Maggers will join us at the bottom of the hour, the CEO of Meckham Auctions. We'll be talking about this new push the, through this pandemic and the problem getting cars and the push to, I guess, mint out your vintage car. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Don't use the vaccines as a mechanism of social control. Don't use the vaccines with mandates to to uh, d- divide society and uh, get people laid off work. Our political leaders, our epidemiological leaders, have had labored under this illusion they can, they can stop the virus from spreading. And that strategy has obviously and clearly failed. No kidding. COVID-19, let the restrictions go. Yes, Omicron is still here, plateauing and decreasing in numbers. And overall, the pandemic fatigue lead me to believe we should build on the Boris Johnson Declaration in the UK and end all restrictions. We could take it from here. Are you with me? Number two. Russian officials say that they have no intention of invading Ukraine. In fact, Minister Lavrov repeated that to me today. But again, we're we're looking at uh, what is visible to all, and it is deeds and actions, not words that make the difference. All eyes on Russia. An invasion looms, many think, and a nine-month war will happen. What's the role you think we should play in Ukraine's defense? Regardless, time is running out to decide. Number one. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. Yeah, uh, cleanup time. President Biden's unscripted screeds on Wednesday had his team scrambling to fix the domestic and international furor and confusion from trusting elections to green lighting a Russian invasion and a GOP accusation. We have it all. So that's what Thursday was. I mean, Wednesday, hour 53 minutes. I'm not complaining. And maybe Joe Biden is just telling the truth, which is just shows a political ignorance, which he is not supposed to have. He was supposed to be the adult in the room, the adult in charge. They had the experience. The businessman is gone. The man that took all interviews and would often make news and attack his critics and yell fake news. Well, you have uh, one year in, you have flat out chaos and inadequacy and I think ineptness on Joe Biden's staff and with President Biden himself. Look, he had some good moments. He obviously, for an hour and 53 minutes, liked to talk, but a lot of things he said uh, were counter- Productive, especially when it comes to what's happening in the Ukraine. First off, what he said on that day, uh, basically he came out and said this on Wednesday, when asked about a Russia invasion and what we would do. Cut to. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a 
minor incursion, and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. So when uh, President Zelensky uh, heard that, he said, I want to remind the great powers that there's no minor incursions and no small, uh, no small nations, just as there are no minor casualties and little grief from the loss of loved ones. Everybody else just looked at it as a stun. They tried to fix it yesterday. Did it work? And what about the meeting today uh, over in Geneva? Benjamin Hall is there, Fox News' uh, State Department correspondent. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us. So how did it go today? Honestly, Brian, I could have written this script, I think, before, before we saw it. You know, the bar was already set really low for this meeting, and uh, they delivered uh, on everything that they didn't promise. I mean, it was... Um, Secretary Blinken seems to really reinforce his, uh, his, the way he handles diplomacy, which is all carrot, no stick. And the only concession that I can see from today came from the U.S. side, and it was an agreement by Secretary Blinken to give Russia the written responses to their concerns they've been asking for for some weeks. Now, if you asked Blinken just a week ago, and we did, whether he would give written responses, he said no, because their concerns are totally false. There's no reason for them. We will not be giving written responses. And today, the only thing that came out of this meeting was Blinken did a U-turn and said, you know, what? we'll give you the written responses you've asked, kick the can down the road, and we'll meet up again at some point in the future. And I asked him today directly in the press conference, I said, well, you're kicking the can down the road and talking. You, Russia continues to increase its troop numbers. They continue to destabilize Ukraine from inside. And I spoke to the Ukrainian foreign minister yesterday who said our economy is in free fall because investors are leaving. We're really struggling as a result of what Russia have done already. Cracks are appearing in the NATO alliance because of what President Biden said the other day. And despite all of this, uh, very, very little action from the U.S. And um, frankly, sitting in that meeting today and hearing President uh, Secretary Blinken speak, it was, uh, it was frankly very disappointing. I know a lot of people uh, in Ukraine will be incredibly disappointed with what they heard as well. Are, are they more ready to fight now? The word is over the last few years, they've taken some of the international armaments and they're more galvanized now than maybe 2015. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no doubt that they've been given a certain number of degree of weaponry. Uh, over the last fiscal year, the U.S. has given around $500 million to them. Uh, the U.K. sent some anti-tank missiles last week, some javelins, and they've actually also sent a handful of uh, training advisors. But, again, the Ukrainians say directly, this isn't enough. You know, you can give us all the small arms and a few anti-tank missiles that you, that you want, but we need uh, anti-air defenses. We need, uh, you know, some of the bigger stuff, because Russian air superiority will just walk all over us if we can't protect against that. So, as they say, we are very grateful for U.S. support, and they're, they're by no means suggesting it isn't sizable. But they're saying, if it comes down to it, it's not going to be anywhere nearly enough to deter Russia um, and, you know, NATO making it very clear that because NATO, Ukraine isn't in NATO, they will not come to their military help either. They will just keep threatening these financial sanctions, which, as we've seen in the past, tend not to work against Russia. And the longer Russia has to prepare for financial sanctions, the longer it can protect some of the industries that might be affected. The, the thinking is that they might try and sanction some of the Russian banks. The longer you give them to prepare, the easier it is for them to shield themselves against it. And it appears that the nuclear option, which was to take them out of the swift banking system, that's been shelved because it's almost impossible to do, and NATO members don't want it. And there again, we have a problem. Uh, as President Biden effectively shone a light on last week, there are huge cracks and divisions within NATO. The Germans and the French, Brian, they don't want uh, harsh 
uh, the harsh response that some people are asking for because it'll affect their economies in turn. So, frankly, disarray while Russia is single-mindedly massing its troops and preparing for an invasion. Uh, and, compl- and completing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The way I understand it, it is not done yet, correct? It's not done yet, but there's nothing stopping it being done. The sanctions have been lifted. Um, so uh, it's, at this point, it's only a matter of time. And there again, the big question is for the Germans, if Russia invades... Uh, will you refuse to take Russian gas through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? There hasn't been a firm commitment for that yet. And the strange uh, line of uh, seems to be uh, with the pipeline completed, we are in a better position because it gives us leverage, um, which no one's quite understood. Uh, better just not to build it. The Ukrainians are furious because it means that no gas has to flow through Ukraine. They can totally bypass Ukraine. And there you really strangle Ukraine. So Nord Stream 2 is a disaster for the Ukrainians. It makes the Europeans more reliant on Russia for their energy needs. Um, It's a terrible pipeline. It's terrible for the West, and it's getting closer and closer every day to completion. Unbelievable. Uh, And Joe Biden said, what would you want? They're almost done. That's the most ridiculous excuse I've ever heard in my life. Here's what General Jack Keane told me on Fox and Friends today. Cut 20. There is not uniformity among the Europeans on what the specifics of the economic sanctions should be. Even some of the tough ones, like taking them out of the international financial messaging system and also Nord Stream 2. There's not unanimity on that, and the Russians know it. So there's likely going to be no deterrence to Russia from attacking based on what we would do after, in my judgment. So what could we do, uh, uh, Benjamin, so it's kind of reinforcing what you said and what he has heard. So, Benjamin, what could you do that would get their attention? Even though we don't want war with Russia, they don't want war with us. And there's talk about that we could move uh, maybe an aircraft carrier uh, offshore and let them know that, you know, uh, let them know that our presence is going to be there. We'd obviously would have superior air power, combat aircraft and ships towards Europe. Would that send a message? U.S. intelligence must also work with the Ukrainians uh, to counter the Russian active measures to doing that on cyber, making that transparent. Would that help? Yes. I mean, all all of those would work. I think when it comes to moving U.S. troops anywhere near the, you know, the the area, I think that that's what they will avoid at all costs because they made it clear there's no military response to this. But um, look, sanctions, certainly. Um, I know they haven't hurt Russia in the past. But uh, preemptive sanctions would send a clear message that you're willing to do things. And frankly, if you sanction some of the oligarchs that prop up Putin, uh, you would really start to hurt them. You know, even things like stop them taking their summer vacations at their palaces in France would probably start to have an impact. You've got to hit those people where it hurts. And for them, it's in the pocketbooks. Uh, the Russian system, of course, will, will trickle along. But those individuals could be sanctioned. And you need to give Ukraine the weaponry to defend themselves. Um, enough that they that Russia knows it'll get a bloody nose if it invades. There's no doubt that that hasn't quite been done yet and could be done. So those two combined, and and then be on the same page. Find a way of coming up with a unified response, not the bickering that we seem to be seeing right now. Uh, and I don't know if that's a lack of leadership that's led to that, but. Russia must be loving it because they're do- all they're doing is being aggressive and all they're watching are cracks starting to appear um, in the alliance uh, and very little action taken. So there just needs to be a different direction and a real leadership role in this. 
Um, but th then again, the Biden administration has been very careful to say that it's not a leader, it's one of the team. And so they seem reluctant to really go out and say, right, this is what's going to happen, this is what we're going to do, and all get on side uh, or, or else. They haven't wanted to do that. And so it's as if there's this big machine moving along without a leader and they just can't settle on one path of action. Uh, no kidding. So the other thing we could do, I've heard discussed, is as if, you, if they move into the Ukraine, all the missile systems of the current NATO members will be moved up or expanded on all the other NATO nations. I mean, was there agreement on something like that? Uh, they have talked about that uh, in the past. Nothing about that mentioned today. But yes, and, and the irony is, and actually Secretary Blinken uh, was quite clear about this today, he said that everything that you have mentioned as a concern has only gotten worse when you've been aggressive. So if you look at the percentage of Ukrainians, for example, who wanted to join NATO 10 years ago, it was about 20%. Well, because of Russian aggression and taking over the East Donbass and Donetsk, that number is about 65%. So I think what Blinken is trying to do is persuade the Russians, say, look, everything that you claim is a concern of yours is only going to become a greater concern if you go down this path of aggression. And they think that's a message that can really work. Um, and yes, another one is that if they invade it, then you, you would expect, and we have heard, that more troops, missiles would be placed on the eastern border of NATO. Um, again, something which the Kremlin have said is a great concern to them. So again, if you do this, that concern is only going to great, uh, you know, increase. So that seems to be how the Blinken, Secretary Blinken thinks he can get through to the Russians. But it hasn't worked in the past. So you know, I don't know what makes him think that that persuasiveness will work this time. So we knew about the German meeting. We knew about the Lavrov meeting. Is there another meeting planned? Because from the White House today, our reporters were saying that uh, Putin's looking at a nine-month war, and they're expecting an invasion soon. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody knows uh, what's going to happen, to be honest. And all the intelligence suggests they are prepping for an invasion. You've got those, not just the troops massing, but you've got the additional uh, the supply lines in place, the field hospitals. Those are the things you really need. Um, and those if you're going to launch a war. And those things have been set up slowly, uh, really quite recently. But if you were Russia and you wanted to show that a war was imminent, just to use as leverage, you would do that. So it's still, we do not know. And there is no one out there but Putin who knows what Putin will do. Um, he doesn't seem to be uh, afraid of the threats. Uh, and as I said earlier, his actions alone, even though he hasn't crossed into the border, uh, across the border, although he has in the East uh, in 2014, uh, his actions are having serious destabilizing effects. And many people are saying that is enough to warrant a response. But the administration feels differently. I think they will wait right up until we see troops and tanks crossing the border before they really carry out anything. And by that point, as the Ukrainians say, it's too late. No kidding. Benjamin Ho, I hear your frustration. I wish it was different, but that's what you expect with Anthony Blinken. He's a failure. He gave us Afghanistan. He gave us lack of follow-up. He left our people behind. He was the one who helped us get out of Iraq prematurely, and now he seems to be screwing this up. Benjamin Hall, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. All right, 1-866-408-7669. Now, I know a lot of you listening and say, why do I care about the Ukraine? Do you want the reconstituted Soviet Union? Do you actually want to go through another 50-year Cold War where money is diverted for nuclear weaponry and, uh, and counteracting through proxy wars all around the globe with now two separate nations? That's why you got to send a message to this gas station of a country uh, with, this, um, with this crazy leader who's appointed uh, to lead that country for life as his president, Xi. 
When we come back, your calls. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The president has been very clear, and we as the United States are very clear. If Putin takes aggressive action, we are prepared to levy serious and severe costs. It is less than clear because 30 minutes after the news conference, the White House press secretary had to actually clarify the president's remarks. Savannah, I'm being clear with you right now. Yes, okay. And and, and so if you're interested, I'll continue to be clear. So uh, evidently, she got a lot of blowback because people want to run to her defense. But she ca- I give her a lot of credit. I mean, she interrupted the president. People are upset by that. But I think she wants answers. Plus, I think fun- I don't know a lot about her. I, I think I met her once in uh, Savannah Guthrie of the, the Today Show, by the way, whose, ref- whose show was hemorrhaging viewers. But she just, she's a lawyer. She's like, I know when you're not answering any questions. But um i think there's a couple of things going on but she does no foreign policy credibility no experience she went over to france and pretended to put on a french accent so she's done a terrible job at the border and now they're desperate to try to make her look relevant and competent and i don't think they can do it so the big thing on the walk back for uh for the presser was number one clarify when it comes to the ukraine number two when it comes to voting do you consider the voting in 2022 legitimate if you're voting re- nationalizing of the voting which only can be done by blowing up the filibuster does that mean you have doubts does that mean you have doubts about the outcome of the election so that was had to be clarified and essentially i don't think they clarified it and then when he came out and said the gop tell me what you're for 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 do you realize there weren't enough microphones in washington because republicans say great no one's asked me on the democratic side i cannot wait to tell you what they're for listen what kind of thing is that to say i keep thinking this when president biden talks for an hour and 53 minutes when any human being does they'll say things they probably uh, will be misinterpreted or they want to walk back but when you do such obvious pro- things that are a mistake, like serving up to the Republican Party, what are you for? That makes reporters ask them the question, and they're more than happy to talk about their agenda. Listen, I'll be able to take some calls when we get back. Uh, and you can also write me, BrianKillMe.com. Just click on comments, and I'll get to them, because some of you guys and some of you ladies are at work now or at school and can't pick up the phone. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. So ask yourself, you know, we know what we're for, but ask yourself the question. I was thinking about this other thing. What are Republicans for? What are they for? It's no accident they didn't even bother to come up with a platform in 2020. They had no platform at their convention because they don't stand for anything except to stop us. I mean, think about that. Is there a more idiotic statement? Even the most, even AOC will tell you exactly what Republicans are for because she's for the exact opposite. They're for strong military defense. They're for building up the border, cracking down on crime, uh, being fiscally, fiscally responsible, and moving past the mandates 
and the crackdowns, clampdowns, and keeping schools open. That's just off the top of my head. I mean, let alone the proactive things that they have there, and I certainly don't want the voting reform. They certainly uh, reform, I should say, the nationalizing of our elections. They certainly don't want to blow up the filibuster. They certainly would love to stop allowing the investment, private investments of stocks among House members that Nancy Pelosi just yesterday decided to sign on for the first time. But for him to bring that up and say they just don't know what they're for, when he used to hang out, I mean, used to travel with John McCain, you know exactly what they're for. They're certainly not for nationalizing health care. I'll tell you that. That's pretty certain. Gem- GOP agenda. You want to know what it's for? Here is Mitch McConnell, cut 30. My good friend, the president, got it wrong once again. Uh, I helped him pass uh, a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, I supported in the Senate a bill to deal with China and the computer chip shortage. Uh, If the president starts acting like a moderate, like he campaigned, uh, we can do business. The reason we've not been speaking recently this year is because he adopted the Bernie Sanders prescription for America. He did that even though he got no mandate for it, a 50-50 Senate and a couple of seat majority in the House, and they, they couldn't get it through. And the reason they couldn't get it through, the American people are not for all of this. They thought they were electing uh, a moderate. If the president wants to reinvent himself and come back to the middle, we have things to talk about that we can work on together. And I'll give you an example. They're not waiting for leadership. Yesterday, Senator Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, known as Dean Moderates, one from Maine, one from West Virginia, kind of bucking their own. Remember, when Republicans are in power, they're upset with Susan Collins and Murkowski on a regular basis. They have trouble reigning, so-called reigning them in. So Democrats aren't the only ones uh, with senators uh, who are outliers. And I respect that because Maine is not a, a deep red state. Uh, Manchin and Susan Collins on Thursday uh, with the press in tow made a public effort to work together on reforming the Electoral College, an 1887 election law that is uh, that they think they both can agree on, that we should get rid of this drama of the vice president coming down and make doing it in a ceremonial way, uh, gaveling in the official electoral total. And what about these renegades electors? We saw this with Hillary Clinton. Oh, Donald Trump didn't really win. The Russians made him win. And some of the electoral college members, they're physically people, defected, despite the fact that the state voted a certain way. There's also thought that maybe it shouldn't be a winner-take-all, that if it's 51-49, the people of that state do want their voice heard. And I think both sides would be into that. That would also spread out the campaigning. For example, if you could maximize what there is left of Republican enclaves in California, you might be able to see a Republican in person, and they might have a reason, a rational reason to go there. So here's what uh, one of the uh, the quote was uh, from one of the senators. It was encouraged by the fact that many of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle have indicated an interest in making sure that votes are properly counted and certified, and that means overhauling the 1880-1887 Electoral College Account Act. It means looking at additional protections against violence and threats for poll workers and election officials. To me, it's pretty obvious. If he had run a company or done negotiations, I think that that President Biden would know it, too. What do we agree on? Let's do it. Let's put that in writing. Why don't we? Let's do the bipartisan agreement. Maybe we can get the same 15, might have been more, 19 senators that signed on for the 
infrastructure bill. Maybe they'll come down and meet us in this basement yesterday and do that thing that both sides agreed on, including Mitch McConnell, that there's ways to to uh, to get together to reform the electoral process. And here's the quote from Susan Collins. I'm very encouraged by the fact that many of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle have indicated an interest in making sure the votes are counted properly and to certify the election and to stop violence against workers. That's pretty good. And I just think that Joe Manchin tweeted this out, too, about those athletes uh, and legends like West Virginians, like uh, Jerry West and the current coach of Alabama, Nick Saban, who came out and said, I'm for election reform, but I'm not for blowing up the filibuster. So Joe Manchin said the glass is half full by tweeting this out. Uh, Coach Saban is exactly right. You cannot throw the filibuster out and expect the legislative process to work. I wholeheartedly agree with the coach that our democracy is at its best when Americans are encouraged to work together. So Donald Trump was on last night, and he was uh, commenting on Joe Biden. And one of the things he says, he goes, I want Joe Biden to be successful, but he's not. And he talked about where the Republican Party is right now, which is very, I mean, I don't remember it ever in this much of a positive stead, maybe right after 9-11. Here's what he said. Cut 32. If you look at the Republican Party, we're doing tremendously with Hispanics and we're way up with African-Americans, way up. Uh, Look, it's a very different party. It's a bigger party. It's a stronger party. Uh, I heard the numbers as you were talking to Kevin. Those are great poll numbers. We've never had numbers like that. The Republican Party is, I think, really doing well. And it's becoming a very different party. But the inroads that we've made with Hispanics is just a beautiful thing. You know, they're very entrepreneurial people. They're very strong, smart, entrepreneurial people. And, that, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know anybody uh, outside the fringe, that top secret left wing society, that really want our borders open to allow all this fentanyl to pour in, all these illegals to come in, and certainly not the Hispanic community. So lastly, before I go to break and come back and talk about something that evolves the economy and the pandemic, I want to talk about the pandemic specifically. You know, the numbers, this is good news, on Omicron, as expected, are beginning to wane in the places it began first in New York and Washington, D.C. They're beginning to the very least plateau, and the hospitals are beginning to uh, empty out to a degree. Now, it's been explained to me, and I wouldn't know this, I don't work in a hospital, but waiting rooms, emergency rooms, are usually 95% full. That's just the way it is. And so when people say they're over capacity, it's really not that much of an increase. But while we sit there and try to open up our country, it's hard not to notice in Austria the parliament voted to make vaccines mandatory for all adults. Essentially, you could be arrested. France, the same thing. Italy, the same thing. But I love what the U.K. did. Essentially announced yesterday, enough with the mandates, enough with the masks, especially outside. As of yesterday, Thursday, it looks as though the U.K. is ready to go. Jay Bacciara, who is at Stanford School of Medicine, was on Laura Ingram last night, cut 34. Don't use the vaccines as a mechanism of social control. Don't use the vaccines with mandates to, to uh, d- divide society and uh, get people laid off work. Our political leaders, our epidemiological leaders, have had labored under this illusion they can, they can stop the virus from spreading. Through the whole pandemic, they've thought this. And that strategy has obviously and clearly failed. The best we can do is protect the vulnerable. The pandemic ends. It's not actually a biological question. It's a political question. 
When are we reached a point where we can say enough is enough, we no longer need all these restrictions, they're not accomplishing much and actually harming many people. Instead, let's just use the resources we have to protect the vulnerable. That's how we reduce the harm from this disease. Right. Try to anticipate the next variant, rush therapeutics in in a hyper way, and then just say, live your life. We've got to get going economically and psychologically and keeping schools open. There's about 6,000 schools that are closed right now. Why? you got to be kidding. And I just love this. Starbucks has decided to not require their employees to get vaccinated because they lost all these employees. If you've ever noticed at a Starbucks, you most likely will see a sign at the door limiting hours or days in which they're open. I told you I went to do a book signing. The book signing started at 6 o'clock. I thought, wow, man, it's been a long ride. Let me get a coffee. I could not get a coffee because every Starbucks closed at 3. When I asked, they had staff problems. One, put it on their door. We have staff problems. On Saturday, 3 o'clock, Saturday, drive through. I'm like, why am I able to drive through so quick? Because the place closed. They didn't have employees. So guess they're getting blowback because the conditioning has been so intense and people have been so scared. They like Howard Stern and others, some major names, every late night host, it seems. Now they're afraid of being in the same place with someone who's not vaccinated. So now Starbucks is facing calls for a boycott after dropping the vaccine mandate. This uh, the following day, they say hashtag boycott Starbucks began to trend on Twitter. How pathetic. When we come back, we'll talk about something that's also taking root in the pandemic, refurbishing, reclaiming, and putting more money into your vintage cars. And also, have you tried to get a car? It is not easy because we got no chips. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Uh, this is a special segment. We want to take a little break from the news and uh, imminent invasion of the Ukraine. Why not do it with Dave Madgers? He's the CEO of Mecham Auctions. Uh, been doing that since 2013. Uh, Dave, welcome. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. We're, uh, we're still reeling a bit uh, from what was a spectacular event in Kissimmee, Florida that uh, lasted for 11 days and ended last Sunday with a world record. Which is? What kind of record? Uh, we set the record for the highest sales total of any collector car auction in history at $217 million total. So these are cars that people brought down of their own to sell? Yeah, we're a consignment auction company, so uh, all of the cars that, that come to our auctions are consigned by individuals and big collectors. And for this particular auction in Florida, which has long been the largest collector car auction in the world, uh, we had 3,500 cars that uh, crossed the block over 11 days. So what has happened during the pandemic that's affected your business? You say people are diving into their cars, <laughs> trying to get that what was the muscle car they wanted or reconditioning the one they have? Yeah, since we went back to auction in uh, in July of 2020, what we noticed is uh, there's been a, a huge influx of new participants in the collector car hobby. And because of that, uh, demand has increased substantially, and supply is very slow in catching up uh, to that demand as collectors see prices starting to rise. They're bringing their cars to auction. Consequently, we've seen prices for old vintage cars up anywhere from at the bottom 20 to 30 percent of what they might have been before to at the top sometimes three and four times what what cars were worth previously and when you talk about cars that are wanted what cars are we talking about what models 
Well, we we uh, typically deal in '60s and '70s American muscle cars, uh, Hemi Cudas, Corvettes, uh, Mustang Boss 429s. But at an auction as big as this, we also had a, a great number of late model exotics, uh, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Ford GTs that did exceptionally well. And we had a, a considerable number of pre-war cars and even uh, several movie and TV cars that, uh, again, brought uh, top dollar. Now, I imagine a couple of reasons why this matters so much now. Uh, number one, people have more time to actually do it. Some people have to work from home. Some people lost their job. Some people were, you know, it, their job was faded out or they're not working as many hours. They don't have to commute. And number two is people are diving into themselves a little bit, trying to do something they enjoy. Yeah, I, you know, I think a couple of things have fueled the uh, the fire in the collector car hobby. Number one, uh, people sat at home for for a long time in 2020 and even 2021 and watched television, and all of our auctions are televised. And so we saw an influx of new customers that never knew about the collector car hobby before, never knew about Mecham auctions before come to the market. And then as we sat home and couldn't travel, couldn't go out to dinner, couldn't go to the movies, discretionary income built, so we now had money to buy that that collector car treasure we've wanted for quite some time. And then finally, I think it's just a, a recognition of our own mortality that, you know, I was going to do that someday. And, and for a great number of things, someday has become today. I guess so. And when you talk about your last show where you set an auction record of $176 million, give us an idea of the models that showed up to impress you. Well, I, you know, I think there, there were a lot of surprising uh, cars that crossed the block uh, we had a world record Mustang that sold for $3.75 million. That was the uh, Ken Miles uh, driven Mustang. Ken Miles, uh, you know, that name became very familiar uh, from the Ford versus Ferrari movie. I think the most surprising to me uh, was a 1936 uh, Glacier National Park tour bus. It was a beautiful vehicle. We had no idea to, what that kind of a vehicle might bring at the auction. We were thinking maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars. It brought a million four hundred and thirty thousand dollars. So it's those kinds of surprises that we've been seeing really across the collector car market from pre-war to exotics and everything in between. Who are these people? Would I know any of these names that would buy it? Number one, I know a lot of money's going to Florida where you held it. So that explains one thing. Uh, number two is, do, uh, where do these people get this money from? Like, who are they? Well, a lot of them are are, are uh, significant collectors. It's not unusual to, to run across a collector that might have 100 or 200 uh, cars in their collections, and they're always looking to add to the collections. Um, you know, I would say the vast majority of buyers at our, uh, our auctions are just the, a guy that has always wanted uh, a 1970 Mustang. And, you know, finally came to the auction. He has one car. He saved up a little money, and he bought the car that, you know, maybe he had in high school, or maybe it's the car he wanted in high school. We all have some kind of an emotional attachment that draws us uh, to certain cars. So you you run the gambit from, uh, I just want to have that car in my garage because it, I have some history with that kind of a car, all the way up to, you know, those that are that are collecting as investments. So it's uh, kind of interesting is that now when you buy a car, a used car, they say check the Carfax. Do the people really care about the history of the car, how many owners, how much body plastic is on it, how much is reconditioned, and how much is original? Yeah, provenance is very important to a collector car. The ability to track the history, uh, you know, most of these cars have been restored at some time uh, in their lives, maybe more than once. 
there are uh, quality restorers and there are restorers that don't do such a good job. So you know, who restored the car? How good a job they did? What's the history of the car? Who's owned the car? How long did they own the car? All of that uh, is relatively important. Probably the, the one thing that's most important when you're buying a, a used car that's not important in a collector car is how many miles does it have? You know, these are 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old cars, and miles doesn't really matter because, as I said, uh, they've all been restored uh, to begin with. All right. Uh, so if people want to catch up to you to your next show, how do they do it? Well, you can go to Meekum.com, M-E-C-U-M.com. Our next show actually starts next week. It is the world's largest collector motorcycle auction at South Point Casino in Las Vegas. And the next car show will be in mid-March in Glendale, Arizona at State Farm Stadium. How do people find you online to, to double-check this and see how to get there? At Meekum.com, we'll have a complete list of all of our auctions. Not only is it a list of all the auctions, but for each auction, it'll show beautiful pictures and descriptions of each vehicle that's going to be offered at that auction as well. Dave Madgers, thanks so much. CEO of Meckham Auctions. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. You got it. Go to BrianKillMe.com, by the way. And um, if you ever have a comment about it, segments like this. Also, if you want to order any of my books, President Freedom Fighter, still doing well. Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. Of course, Andrew Jackson, the Miracle of New Orleans. Thomas Jefferson, the Triple E Pirates. Or George Washington's Secret Six. I can actually personalize them and send them out to you. That's how sophisticated my system is. Don't go anywhere. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade, the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from New York City. Heard around the country, heard around the world. We we're quite hopeful that this new mayor will bring law and order to the streets. So far, the stats say no. And I'm really wondering, this guy's got about six months to prove himself. And if you could get New York City safe, it'll, it'll shame the others to crack down on their cities. But so far, it's not happening. And I, get, I have anecdotal evidence. We have real-world evidence. And I got to see more of an effort and less show. Uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik will be with us here. Yes, she's from New York, but she's also chairman of the House Republican Conference, member of the Armed Services Committee, Education and Intelligence. Uh, She just had a kid, and she's still trying to uh, turn around the Republican Party, and so far the numbers look pretty strong for her. Before we get to Geraldo Rivera, one of the newest uh, cast members on The Five, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Don't use the vaccines as a mechanism of social control. Don't use the vaccines with mandates to, to uh, d- divide society and uh, get people laid off work. Our political leaders, our epidemiological leaders, have had labored under this illusion they can, they can stop the virus from spreading. And that strategy has obviously and clearly failed. That is uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford. COVID-19, let the restrictions go. Yes, Omicron is still here. Plateauing and decreasing numbers, though, in major cities like Washington and New York. Pandemic fatigue is everywhere. Pull up Boris Johnson in the U.K. and declare the end of all restrictions and mandates. Let's do it. Number two. Russian officials say that they have no intention of invading uh, Ukraine. In fact, Minister Lavrov repeated that to me today. But again... We're looking at uh, what is visible to all, and it is deeds and actions 
not words that make the difference. All eyes on Russia. An invasion looms. What's the role you think we should play in Ukraine's defense? Regardless, time is running out to decide. Lavrov and Blinken just met. We'll bring you the latest. Number one. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. There's a lot of doubt, and that's the problem. Cleanup time. President Biden's unscripted screeds on Wednesday has his team scrambling to fix the domestic and international furor and confusion. From trusting elections to greenlighting a Russian invasion and a GOP accusation, we'll look at it all. So let's bring in Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo, welcome, and again, congratulations on being permanent member of the five. Oh, thank you, Brian. I, I'm sorry, but uh, my wife is singing Meatloaf in the background here. <laughs> I'm on the air with uh, Brian live, darling. So, <laughs> but she's, she says she says hi. Well, so, but, but was she singing I, along with the music because World. Meatloaf passed away at the age of 74? In case yeah, you do it was not terrible. Know. And when, you know, I, I I knew him in a in a casual Hollywood kind of way. Uh, we used to. He was best friends with the Port Lee coffee shop owner that I went to, and just a great guy, just wonderful, wonderful, uh, self-effacing uh, iconoclast who had some really great songs. But I mean, we're on the verge of war in Europe. I mean, it's very, very distressing. I, I think that the problem with uh, what President Biden did uh, during that press conference is, you know, he, he told the truth. Uh, about uh, what he was thinking about Russia and uh, incursion, invasion. Well, let's uh, hear yeah, it. He... Let's hear it. Just to remind everybody, cut to. Okay, sure. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. Well, and the thing is, and you know the foreign minister and the president said, are you kidding me? There's no such, and I'll just paraphrase, there's no such thing as a small invasion or yeah, incursion. Like, uh, you know, you got to be kidding. If we, if we were Ukraine and, uh, and Russia was Canada, it's like we gave them Maine. You take the state of Maine. as It's an incursion. You know, it was not that big a deal. Uh, it's, uh, I think it was, it was awful. I, I, I think it was ill-advised. I also think that... That was the U.S. position until he made the blunder, and I think the United States now is changing its position to, uh, you know, now he's saying, you know, any Russian, uh, uh, you know, in, any Russian presence in Ukraine now would be considered an invasion. The question is, what do we do then? And uh, I, I think you and I will disagree on that. So I uh, just got to give you some relatively new news. Benjamin Hall was just on with us last hour. He just had they just had wrapped up the Lavrov Blinken meeting. And I asked him how it went, obviously. And he said, Brian, it, this this Blinken continues to be uh, all carrot and no stick. And one way they've already given in is said, you know, when the Russians gave their outrageous demands of, uh, you know, we need all the NATO presence out of the former Warsaw Pact nations uh, and we want don't want any military presence there. He said that we're not going. To, they're so far-reaching these requests. We're not going to put it in writing. We're not going to answer them. Now he's agreed to answer every one of the Russian demands uh, in writing. So we're already showing some give. And diplomatic—that's a big, big news. I don't feel secure anytime Anthony Blinken's in charge, especially after Afghanistan. What he told us, how he went to the Hamptons, and what happened. What do you think should happen next? And what is America's role? Well, I just want everybody to be a student of history and remember 1938, remember Czechoslovakia and Germany. It was a similar kind of situation. 
the Sudetenland, the uh, uh, the western part of Czechoslovakia, many German-speaking people. Uh, you know, very much a relationship between those Czechs and the Germans. Hitler demanded Czechoslovakia give. Germany, Sudetenland, part of Czechoslovakia, and Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, negotiated in Munich and very famously, cowardly, uh, gave into Hitler's demands and gave part of Czechoslovakia uh, uh, to Germany. Uh, Czechoslovakia as a nation then ceased to exist virtually uh, in the coming months. I, I think that it is very crucial right now that we stand firm. Now, do I believe uh, that a red line should be drawn where the United States will be uh, drawn into World War III? No, and I'm glad that Biden made that clear. We're talking about destroying Russia economically. Russia is a very vulnerable country. All they do is exist on selling oil to Germany and, and some of those other countries. They have no other industries to Unless they of. get the Ukraine. If they get the Ukraine, it's a different story. I agree. I agree. And it, 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 it would be – and they, they have a powerful historic case, as in Crimea. Uh, Ukraine used to be part of the Russian Empire, but it's not now. It's an independent country, has an independent language now. The young people don't even speak Russian, a bunch of them. Uh, so I, I think that we've got to draw a line. Uh, you know, but, what, but the line isn't the trigger of war. The line is that we will economically destroy Russia, that we will remove – for instance – no Russian transaction can be completed in any bank run uh, chartered in the United States. If you want to bank, if you want to deal with the United States, you cannot deal with Russia. Russia is hereby foreclosed from the international banking system. Uh, you know that will cause amazing disruption around the world. Okay, but it would be devastating. Geraldo, I know that's your method, but let me just tell you that's been taken off the table, according to Benjamin Hall and others. We're no longer doing that. And here's the problem. Europe, the most vulnerable, and we're the most powerful, but they're the most vulnerable, is not on board with these strict sanctions because economically they're so intertwined or, 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 they're, or they're just in the appeasement mode. I agree with everything you said, but let me ask you if you think we're right in saying that there's no way we will get militarily involved because the minute you took that off the table, that empowers Vladimir Putin. As much as we don't want war with him, they don't want war with us. And when we said, don't worry about it, we won't go in militarily, that made him look at this differently. Was that a mistake? You know, I, I just, the war, the idea, the prospect of war in Europe is so chilling. I mean, we have not – I, I, I think that Biden is right when he says this is the most dangerous, uh, you know, moment since World War II. If, if Russia crosses with that armor into Ukraine, what are we going to do? Put in the 101st Airborne, the 82nd Airborne, the big red one? You know, you, you're talking about something that would disrupt the entire planet, if not, you know uh, – cause destruction and, and, and death on an epic scaling, and we can't go down that road. We have to tell Putin, and, and Putin knows uh, how he's a cowboy now, and he's showing off now. He's got his shirt off, and I can relate to that, as you know. Right. Uh, you know but the, the, he, he cannot move those tanks into Ukraine without some kind of response. I think that we could do something like this, Brian, for instance, aside from all those that economic sanction. I know you're saying it's off the table, but if the United States unilaterally was to decide 
that we would uh, stop doing business with anyone who does business with Russia, I, 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 we could we could alone we could make that happen. We could destroy the Russian economy alone. But we also should do something more flamboyant, like troops to Poland, uh, troops to the uh, uh, the Baltic states. Immediately. Immediately. Right. Uh, and, and wake up, you know, slap Germany around and say, wake up, where the hell is your army? They've been sleeping, uh, you know, ever since you became good guys. Uh, get the French involved. Macron is very competent. I, I like Macron. And I think the French have real pride. And, I, I, you know, they, they have a relationship with Russia that's, that goes back past Napoleon's day. But I think that uh, we, Europe is not defenseless. They've just got to – Remember their 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 uh, you know their macho. They've got to get their mojo. So uh, so it was pointed out to me. That we could, you opened up this segment by talking about Sudetenland and just uh, you know Hitler said, "Hey, we got German speaking people here. Just let me have it, and then I'll calm down." And this guy saying uh, Vladimir Putin saying, "Yeah, I got Russian speaking people there. They don't really like this new president, and uh, I owe it to them. And uh, you know, I got Russians." So he's going to use that same method. It was brought up today. Michael Vickers writes in the Washington Post in the editorial section uh, that President Biden's deterrence by denial of the taking the, uh, of denial by declaring that the United States will not use direct military force to counter a Russian invasion says that's the same green light uh, for the Russians that the North Koreans got to invade South Korea for where Kim uh, Sung the the founder of that ridiculous country, to invade South Korea because we made a similar statement right after World War II, and we ended up in the Korean War, as you know. I I do, Brian, but I, I think that some things are so, so deep that you can't, you can't go there. You can't. It's one thing. We have, we've been spoiled. You know, and I, I've been a war correspondent for most of my 50-year career. And, you know, it's different when the war is being fought in Afghanistan and the war is being fought in Iraq or in Somalia or in Central America or in the bushes of the Philippines. They're far away. They don't, when, what, what happens if the Russians blow up something in Cleveland? What, you know, this is, this, the stakes are so bone-chilling that a world where Ukraine is occupied by Russia and the world is still intact is better than a world that is destroyed because we didn't want Russia to occupy Ukraine. That's true, but play it out. If they take the Ukraine, then they'll go back and take the stands, and then they'll start to reconstitute in the Soviet Union, and then we're going to be in a 60- to 70-year Cold War, and with each acquisition, they become more and more powerful. Right now... As powerful as they are, they are the least powerful they would be if we allow this aggression to continue. So we could say um, for 2022 to 2025, uh, the world was safe. But by allowing the world to be safe for those three years, you made it very, very dangerous for the next 50, for the next generation of diplomats and war fighters. Do you agree with that? I probably I agree more than I disagree, but I just go back to what I said. I've been in these conflicts from the ground up. I've watched them start. You know, I was in Tora Bora right in November 2001. Uh, I was in uh, Iraq uh, when that, you know, uh, I was in Kuwait when we were getting ready and then crossed the border into Iraq. Uh, it is 
it is such a, a monstrous, massive job to get, you know, we've watched this build up on the, uh, in Ukraine, uh, on the east. We've seen the Russians build up. They've got 150, 175,000 troops. That's a massive logistical effort. And, you know, to think that we are now going to redeploy, that we're going to, you know, I, I hope that Putin understands that we can destroy Russia right now if we do these sanctions, like excluding Russia from the international banking system unilaterally. That, to me, right. has to scare macho Putin more than our troops and the buildup that would inevitably have to take place. So, it would be months. We've got nothing there now. Got I, you hope, but let me just bring you to the Wall Street Journal today real quick. I only have 30 seconds left. They said they did a, a psychological workup on Vladimir Putin, and his biggest risk, his biggest weakness was he doesn't understand risk, his willingness to take risks without, without, pre, without pre-thought. That was the that was the Vladimir Putin CIA agent in East Germany as the Berlin Wall fell. Having said that, I think there's very little chance he's not going in and that we're not going to be forced to do something because we're the mature uh, people on the stage. 20 seconds. Everything in war is unknown. Every plan, every precise plan. Every We've got this. Our experts say this is what's going to happen and this is going to follow that and we're going to do this and this and this. The, the first shot, everything falls apart. The first shot, everything is improv. When you have all these nuclear weapons involved there, Brian, what you're talking about now, I could, I could cry because once you go down that road, mm-hmm. it's a slippery slope. Right? right. But Geraldo, they're going down the road. We're not going down the road. We would just decide if we want to meet them on that road. That's well, what that's I think will to be continued. Okay. Geraldo, thanks so much. We'll look forward to All seeing right, you on the five. Have a great weekend. Okay. Uh, and Eric has a on your show. Thank you. On our big show. You better put me on that show. Absolutely. And uh, tell you tell Erica she has a great voice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, listen, when we come back, your calls. Brian Kilmichael. Don't move. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A friend of mine was with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis the other day and had a private conversation, but he, didn't, he said he didn't have, it wasn't confidential. And he asked if any of this, if, there's, if there is any conflict or bickering between you and him, and he said, absolutely not. He said, it's total BS. Is he right? Well, he is right. I get along great with Ron. Ron was very good on the Mueller hoax. He was... Uh... He was right up front, along with Jim Jordan and all of the rest of them. They were fantastic. The Republicans really stuck together, and it was a great thing. And Ron was one of them, and Ron wanted to run, and I endorsed him, and that helped him greatly. And uh, he went on, and he's done a really terrific job in in Florida. And I think, you know, Ron has been very good. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. Uh, that that really dispelled the biggest story on the Republican side, made one of the biggest stories in politics. And Donald Trump has trouble not telling the truth when it comes to rivalries because he's always got a tactic. I think he's as good as anybody at that, too. He'll see a rivalry and they'll point little things out about them. Yeah, he's got a problem. You know, such and such got a problem. You know, he's got a popularity issue or he's got an issue when it comes to the military. And if there was an issue with Ron DeSantis, he would have been unable to hide it. So I think that's important. That was a great question Sean asked. When we come back, 
I'll be able to talk to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik about the direction of the party, not the presidency, the party. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show uh, from New York. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is an honor to be with so many friends and supporters. And um, to be here to mark the first year of the Biden-Harris administration, uh, it is time um, that is defined, a time that is defined by uncertainty. Well, how motivational is that? Uh, that's what Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is on, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, as she tries to get her party out of the minority uh, once and for all in 2022. Congresswoman Stefanik, welcome back. Great to be back, Brian, but I'm one of the leaders in the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party. <laughs> right, but that was one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, the Kamala Harris, who, who says uh, is a, uh, def- this last year has been defined by uncertainty. Well, it's been defined by a disaster, and it's been defined by crisis after crisis. And every American should ask themselves, are they better off or worse off than one year ago? And across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independents, every American family is worse off because of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's failures in partnership with Speaker Pelosi and the Senate leader Chuck Schumer. On every issue that matters, on inflation, this is the highest rate of inflation since since before I was born, Brian, since 1981. I was born in 1984. Uh, Inflation has gone up almost every month of Joe Biden's presidency, and that hits people every day when they go to the grocery store, when they go to the gas pump. You know, on top of that, we have the border crisis, uh, the highest number of illegal immigrant apprehensions in my lifetime. And 2021, unfortunately, uh, 2022 is it's likely not to slow down because there is no effort to secure the border. So Kamala Harris is really out of touch, as is Joe Biden, as he showed at his disastrous press conference this week. So you think it was a disaster? I know they're trying to walk back the comments on Ukraine. They're trying to walk back their doubts about election integrity and also going after Republicans saying, what are you for? What are you for? Let's listen. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. Maybe maybe you want to answer that question because it's not up to the press to outline the Republican agenda. So I don't know who he was talking to. I'm happy to answer that question. Republicans are for the Constitution. We are for keeping kids in school. We are against unconstitutional mandates. We are for balanced budgets. We are for lower taxes. We are for border security. We are for strong national security and peace through strength. All of those issues Joe Biden is against, and it's been a far-left agenda out of touch with mainstream America. Uh, We are for safe communities. Uh, Let's talk about the crime crisis, uh, which continues to skyrocket across the country in states like my home state in New York, states like California, but also parts of the Midwest. Uh, This is on Joe Biden's watch. And what was interesting about his press conference, Brian, which was an absolute disaster, is Joe Biden used to say the buck stops with him. He blamed everybody else. 
that was a blame game, you know, not taking any accountability press conference. And it was massive cleanup that his White House staff had to do uh, in the hours and day after. No question. And the other story that I can't get any traction on nationally is what's going on with crime, especially in New York, where these are we at the point yet, Congresswoman Stefanik, where people are beginning, even Democrats beginning to push back against these permissive DAs who think criminal first. Alvin Bragg is the latest to win an election thanks to George Soros's million dollars that people just ignored this. And he came in, clarified in a memo that these prosecutors should stop prosecuting or quit. And then he tried to clarify yesterday. Tell me if this makes you feel any better. Cut 37. Bail reform, I'm, gonna, I'm sure that's going to be talked about a lot during the legislative session. Um, you know, one thing I would say is in a number of these cases, and I won't talk about specific ones, but, but bail is being talked about, um, you know, particularly I'll talk about it for the, in the context of some of the gun cases, um, you know, where nothing changed in the bail law with respect to guns. Um, so I'm kind of ha- ha- happy to sort of as the uh, session goes forward and people are having specific conversations to, to, to engage with those. Um, but I do think it's important to sort of point out what changed and what didn't. And I've heard a lot of discussion about, you know, you know, guns and the laws to get bail and guns didn't change. So what he basically has said is to stop prosecuting crime. And the old, his own police commissioner said, I can't believe this. He says, uh, if, you're ordered to, uh, uh, if you're ordered to halt a prosecution on some level of crime, also vowed to downgrade charges in some cases of armed robbery and burglary. He tried to clarify about guns. It makes no sense. He says he's basically said lay off marijuana, misdemeanors, prostitution, resisting arrest and fair dodging. So are we just have do we have to lay back as Americans and just watch things go to hell? No, we shouldn't lay back and voters need to understand that their votes have consequences and I think people are realizing that. I think that's why you saw such strong performance among, frankly, Republicans statewide in New York in local elections uh, against this really far-left agenda. I mean, you go to New York City, it is no longer the same New York City it was just three or four years ago. Uh, it is not safe. Look at the subway, the horrific, you know, that poor woman who's young, had so much of her future ahead, pushed on the subway. You just had a, a young baby, and I'm a new mom. My heart absolutely breaks uh, for that. That death, that killing of a stray bullet uh, in the last 48 hours, uh, this is unsustainable. And, you know, it's very sad in New York. It's why we're losing population uh, who are moving elsewhere. But you're right, Brian, to point out this has been an effort from George Soros and the far left for many, many years. And it's not just in blue states, but in DAs, uh, in key, you know, regions across America uh, that that side with the criminals rather than with, you know, the people. People they represent in law enforcement and bail reform has been an absolute disaster in New York State. Look no further than the crime stats. Look at the skyrocketing homicide rates. Look at the overall crimes uh, in New York City. Uh, and, and again, it's not just in New York City. It's other parts of the state and other parts of the country as well. Um, so you, you saw that press conference and you saw where we stand right now with Ukraine. And Anthony Blinken seemed to have made no progress with Foreign Minister Lavrov in Russia um, Congresswoman, I think Republicans are are pretty much split on how involved we should get. I personally think we should get very involved and avoid a second Cold War and send a message to Vladimir Putin. But people I really respect, like uh, Tucker Carlson, my colleague here, is totally against we should not be involved at all. Where do you stand? 
My position is Ukraine is an important partner for us, and they are important geopolitically because of their geographic location and because uh, it is really Putin's testing ground. Uh, we have seen that uh, Vladimir Putin previously, whether it's cyber incursions or the Crimea, uh, he is making inroads. And this year, not only is the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's presidency, but it's actually you know an anniversary for the Soviet Union as well. And Vladimir Putin wants to put together the former Soviet Union. I think it's important for us to stand with democracies. It's important for us to stand with our partners. What's very frustrating that Joe Biden is doing is he basically, you know, you don't say, well, there'll be consequences after you attack. In order to deter attacks, which should be the goal, they should be tough on Russia right now. Uh, for example, sanctioning the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, again, you have Joe Biden giving giveaways to Vladimir Putin from the beginning of his presidency, and Putin senses weakness. In the first year of any presidency, our adversaries test the commander-in-chief, and Joe Biden has failed those tests. So what have I supported in the past? As I said, I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I'm on the House Intelligence Committee. I've supported providing advanced weapons to Ukraine. Uh, I've supported training operations to ensure that our Ukrainian partners uh, have access to the best training possible. I've actually been to Ukraine before on a delegation. And uh, again, if we want to make sure that Russia is not on the rise, it's important that Ukraine maintain its sovereignty and its geographic borders. Uh, what is concerning and just outrageous. I never thought I would hear a president of the United States ever say a minor incursion, um, you know, as if it's okay, as if giving the green light to an adversary to uh, commit a minor incursion. There's no such thing as a minor incursion. Uh, you know, on our border, we have a major incursion and we see the absolute crisis it is. So uh, it has been a real disappointment and it's not the only foreign policy failure under Joe Biden. Uh, Lisa Vonick, our guest. Uh, Congresswoman, I just got to ask you, too, with this China bill should have been a layup. The Senate gives it to the House, and, if, and Nancy Pelosi sat on it. Now I understand uh, they're beginning to make progress, and what we do is provide $52 billion to start our own chip industry because we basically gave it up. Taiwan is the other place that makes chips for our cars. What could you tell us about the content of this bill and what the holdup has been in the House? So I've been one of the lead voices for the CHIPS Act, and it is important when we think about uh, future manufacturing, just the future of everything, future of technology, CHIPS are going to be the driver, and we want to make sure that we are not dependent upon China, that we're, we have those manufacturing capabilities in the United States. Uh, that investment is critical. It not only creates jobs, but it allows us to maintain the cutting edge on one of the most important technologies uh, in this century. So it's an important bill. I've been a leader on it. It hasn't actually, it, it's tied to my district as well. We have a, a business nearby, called, a manufacturer called Global Foundries. Uh, but it's important for national security. It's important for economic security. And what we saw during the COVID pandemic is we can no longer rely on, on, you know, on Asia, on China for manufacturing. We saw the outcomes when we've become so dependent when it comes to our supply chain, and we have to rebuild American manufacturing, particularly with technology such as chips. Lastly, Donald Trump was on with Sean Hannity last night when asked about his prospects of running. Here's what he said. Cut 33. Are you running in 2024? We have 15 seconds. Well, I think you'll be happy, but we'll let you know at a little bit later date. What do you hope he says and uh, what do you think he means by that? I know he's been a supporter you know, of yours and you've been a supporter of his. Yeah, you know, I think uh, people definitely have buyer's remorse. Uh, those who voted for Joe Biden polling shows that, that many people uh, regret that vote. And I think President Trump is very focused, and we've talked about this, on making sure we win back the midterms in the House. 
uh, and that will be important leading into the 2024 presidential. Uh, I hope he runs, and um, you know, I think that was the right answer. He can take his time in making this decision, but he's really been a part of our team to make sure we can win and fire Nancy Pelosi once for all if Republicans win back the House. Congress, uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin took a risk. He left a contentious district uh, on Suffolk County, New York, and says, I'm going to run for governor. And many people say, wow, you, you can't win as a Republican. Did somebody, did something show, did something in the polls show someone like you uh, what happened on Long Island, what happens in upstate and possibly the city, that maybe this state might be giving a Republican a second look for the first time since George Pataki? I think it is the best opportunity in a generation for Republicans to win uh, the governor's race in New York. And um, I'm glad that there are strong candidates who are running. Um, I think if you look at just the trends and the outcomes of the local elections last November, there were a lot of surprises. And not only did Republicans win numerous ballot measures uh, and we were, you know, had less funding behind them, but we won, you know, key races in, uh, you know, what I consider the downstate region because I'm way up in the north country. But I think voters are going to turn out big and they want to change in Albany. Similar to what we've seen in Washington when it's unified government, we've seen that with super majorities in Albany. And look at the results. I mean, we are losing population. The tax proposals continue to climb. The regulations continue to get worse. The unconstitutional mandates that Kathy Hochul is putting into place, the gross mismanagement during COVID and the horrible, horrible fatalities of our seniors and nursing. So I think it's a great opportunity for Republicans to put forth a message and win. And I'm going to be out there campaigning with the Republican nominee to give us the best shot. So, yeah, and you don't kiss. So you're not going to weigh in whether it's Rob Astorino, whether it's Andrew Giuliani or Lee Zeldin. You know, I will. Pro- I, I'm friends with them all. I serve with Lee and Lee has the endorsements of county chairs. Uh, there's a convention coming up. I'm going to let that play its course. And, um, you know, I'll probably weigh in before the primary. But uh, right now it's important that, you know, Republicans are engaged. And I actually think having multiple candidates is a strength. When I first ran, I had a primary and it helped me become the strongest candidate I could going into the general election. And so, how's your, uh, yeah. How's your family doing? Oh, they're doing great. Uh, Sam, my my son, he's our first child, is uh, almost five months. And, you know, that's when they're he's always had a little personality, but it's really coming out now with the smiles and the beginning to talk and and starting a little bit of the eating. So it's just it's joyful. And uh, I should note today is March for Life in Washington, D.C. And I will tell you that as a new mom who was just so excited every step of the way, uh, as Sam grew when I was pregnant, um, there's nothing more important than protecting life. And it's just very, very special to be a new mom. Uh, And it's a challenge like lots of parents out there juggling every Everything, but it makes me even more passionate about the work that I'm doing to make sure that we have a positive future in this country that protects the American dream for my son and future generations. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know how you're doing it. Two separate, uh, two separate cities wor- working full time, Washington and New York. At the same time, you're in leadership as well as representing your district. But she does it all. Lee Stefanik, thanks so much, Congresswoman. Thanks, Brian. All right. Listen, when we come back, it's your turn. one 408 I see some calls from New York, Gainesville, Florida, and more. Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first. Only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Even the leader of Ukraine and some of our Euro- European partners were 
upset or concerned about the president's language. So do you do you offer at least that he was being inarticulate when he made the comments he did? Lester, what I offer is that he has made his views very clear to President Putin. He's made his views clear to the allies. I think over the course of the press conference, his views were quite clear. And once again, he reiterated them again this morning. The president of Russia is on notice. Uh, that is Ron Klain, chief of staff, uh, not admitting. Maybe he can't. I would say it. He would uh, watch it back. He wants to clarify. But he decides not to. Ron Klain also reportedly is running to the left again, talking to the squad and others about what is possible to pass instead of running to mansion and cinema to the middle and saying, what could we get done? They're holding all the cards. I have no idea what his ideology is, but it's he seems to be uh, his instincts are letting him down and letting his boss down. Pete, listen on WABC. Hey, Pete, you're over in Connecticut. Hey, Brian, how are you? Thank you for always uh, telling how it is. A um, couple quick things. Um, I disagree with Geraldo um, on this uh, Ukraine invasion. You know, he's talking about stuff 20 years ago. Before there was the Internet, before there's social media, things move much faster now. The American people do not want to go to war. We have had enough war. We do not need this. Why are we meddling in everyone else's business? And if we had strong leadership, this wouldn't be happening. We obviously know there's something going on with our president, some cognitive thing or whatever. Ron Klain is a swamp creature that has been in Washington his whole life and has never been out in the real world. I own a business. I employ 15 people. This inflation is killing us. I'm five generations in Connecticut. We're thinking about leaving. Connecticut and New York are secretly trying to pass mask laws and other laws into into legislation that our children will have to have masks on whenever they call it after COVID. You know, I mean, I don't know what's going on, but this is like very terrifying for people that have young children. And I, you know, I just don't know. I, I can't believe that the mainstream media and our politicians are pushing these but, buttons. But just so you know, Pete, uh, I, I agree with you. Our weaknesses has uh, led to vulnerability, especially out of Afghanistan. The president says he has no regrets, which sickens me. And that leads to Putin's aggression. And to sit back and say, well, we don't want war. What you're doing is delaying it. You're not stopping it. And I think just going through history, and I agree with you, in the Internet age, that means there won't be a slow builder. It'll be a massive builder. But if you don't show deterrence, uh, we'll bet steamroll. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Thanks Kilmeade. so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we come to you from New York City. We're heard around the country, heard around the world. This hour, we're going to be joined by Pete Hegseth. Uh, Pete is fresh off a great summit on the miseducation of America, how we got so far left in things that matter most, and that's the shaping of young American minds, how they become anti-American minds, and how you have to push back. Hopefully, we have a, a game plan going forward. He had a big summit yesterday. His series is now posted on Fox Nation. And Shannon Bream is standing by. She had a big story this week. And we're still watching the movement on Russia. Evidently, people are preparing any minute for a invasion now that our Secretary of State and Foreign Minister have ended their talk. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. 
don't use the vaccines as a mechanism of social control. Don't use the vaccines with mandates to, to uh, d divide society and uh, get people laid off work. Our political leaders, our epidemiological leaders have had labored under this illusion they can, they can stop the virus from spreading. And that strategy has obviously and clearly failed. No kidding. $7 trillion later, COVID-19. Let the restrictions go. Yes, Omicron is still here. And yes, it's plateauing in major cities and decreasing in numbers gradually and will, will soon decrease rapidly. Let's pull a Boris Johnson and kill all the restriction and mandates right away. Number two. Russian officials say that they have no intention of invading Ukraine. In fact, Minister Lavrov repeated that to me today. But again, we're, we're looking at uh, what is visible to all, and it is deeds and actions not words that make the difference. Yes, I would say that's right. All eyes on Russia and invasion looms. What's the role you think we should play in Ukraine's defense? Regardless, time is running out. Number one. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. Ugh, cleanup time. President uh, Biden's unscripted screeds on Wednesday has his team scrambling to fix the domestic and international furor and confusion from trusting elections to greenlighting a Russian invasion and an accusation about the GOP. With me right now is Shannon Bree, Fox News legal analyst, host of uh, Fox News at Night, uh, and author of Women of the Bible Speak. Welcome, Shannon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Glad it's Friday. Uh, yeah, you're pumped up. Uh, dance party tonight at midnight. We know that. But the big story this week, I just want to, we have not touched on it a lot, but I was waiting for you, is you found out, you want to get to the bottom of a story that said that uh, Justice Gorsuch was being irresponsible, somewhere reporting, and showing up at work despite urgings from John Roberts, the chief justice, to wear a mask around Sotomayor, especially because she has diabetes, and he doesn't do it. And this is a big story. And everyone's running with the story. And in fact, I believe uh, PBS is staying with it. Uh, you found out a different story. Yeah, NPR has stood NPR. by the story. They said that there was a poor verb choice, choice of verb. Um, and listen, the core of the story was that the chief justice had asked other justices with Justice Sotomayor's concerns in mind to wear masks on the bench and that Justice Gorsuch had refused. And so she was going to participate remotely for everything because of that. So as soon as I read the story on Tuesday, I thought, well, I, you know, it doesn't ring 100 percent true to me, but let me start trying to work my sources over at the court and see what I could find. And it didn't take me long to find um, that there was a lot of misinformation there, that the chief had not apparently gone around to the justices and asked them all to wear masks, and then there had been a refusal by Justice Gorsuch. Um, you know, I, the more that it, questions that I asked, the more clear it became to me that there was something inaccurate about the story. And so, um, you know, we went on the record Tuesday night with our sources. Everybody's got their own sources. Sometimes you get burned by a source who doesn't give you the full story or give you the full context. And, and so I don't know what happened here. I mean, Nina's obviously very well sourced. She's been covering the court for decades. But I was confident in what I'd found out from my sources as well. So I want you to hear how everything was covered. Cut 40. Anti-mask insanity has now reached the highest court in the land. Risking the life of your colleague because you just don't feel like putting a mask on? You, Neil Gorsuch, are both a rotten co-worker, dangerous to be near in a pandemic, 
tonight's absolute worst. Can you put a mask on to be Seriously. polite? What kind hard. of workplace is this? All of the other conservative members of the court are willing to go along with this. Why not him? It's, and it, they're ranting, and it's just not true, correct? Mm-hmm. And media, yeah, and I made you the I winner knew, of the day. Yeah, I mean, I knew Tuesday night I was confident in, in what I had dug up. So I, I thought, you know, the only thing that's really going to settle this is if the justices themselves spoke out in some way. So, boom, the next day we get the joint statement from Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor, and people who were still defending the NPR story said, well, that doesn't get to the core about whether the chief asked everybody to do this or not. Well, then, boom, we get a statement from the chief saying, I never asked Justice Gorsuch or any of the other justices to wear masks. So I thought, okay, well, then I'm I'm obviously clearly comfortable. I was leading into this, but now more so than ever that my sources had this right. But NPR is still standing by the story and say that it's all in how you interpret and read the sentence. So uh, that's another big story. The other big story is Joe Biden trying to walk back his remarks about the Ukraine, saying an incursion, that's a little different than an invasion. Cut to. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. So that prompted this, cut one. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. But it didn't stop the Ukrainian president for coming out, the foreign minister for coming out, and basically being shocked and stunned that the president made his original remarks. What's the fallout here? Well, you got to think, Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State, has been over in that region all week trying to work on these things. He was in Kiev with uh, Zelensky, and he was in Berlin and now in Geneva, uh, and he's had his chance to talk with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. But, you know, this puts him in the middle of everything, literally. He, he's over there trying to do diplomacy and calm things down. And I, I got to imagine when he saw those statements during the original presser with the president, I, I, his heart sank, like, oh, no, i got to clean this thing up. I thought we were moving in the right direction. Um, And that just opened a whole new issue for him. So, you know, you heard him say this morning that Lavrov told him there's no intention of invading Ukraine. Well, right. Having no intention, that's not to me a very comforting statement. And if I were the people of Ukraine, I would not be comforted by that. It's not unequivocal. Right. Uh, We had uh, Benjamin Hall on earlier, and he said the, the secretary of state is all carrot and no stick, has already agreed where he said he wouldn't. And he will now be answering all of Russia's demands in writing. So already acquiescing, think they're giving him the wrong message. But don't worry, when in trouble, you turn to your vice president. Tell me where you stand on this, because Savannah Guthrie is getting pushback, saying she disrespected the vice president. Listen, cut three. The president has been very clear, and we as the United States are very clear. If Putin takes aggressive action, we are prepared to levy serious and severe costs. It is less than clear because 30 minutes after the news conference, the White House press secretary had to actually clarify the president's remarks. Savannah, I'm being clear with you right now. Yes, okay. And, and, and so if you're interested, I'll continue to be clear. And then it got uglier from there. What are your thoughts about this? Because you got to respect the title, but you also need answers. 
Yeah, that's always the fine line. I think that we have when you have someone um, of, of power and, and a very respected position, you do owe some deference to that for sure. But if your job is to get answers, you got to push some because we all know people come in with talking points. There are very few lawmakers ever that any of us interview who don't have their set topic and their points that they want to make. And pushing them off those points uh, is really the best way to get to the heart of the information you're trying to get to. So that, I think, is the tricky fine line for a journalist. And two, we all know that um, some press outlets, uh, if you press the the principle too far, you're going to lose access, at least for a little while. So you got to think about the bigger picture, which you feel like you shouldn't, but you got to calculate those things in because you want to keep channels of communication open and be able to ask those questions uh, again. So the president cast doubt on Wednesday about the outcome of the 2022 election, which is likely not going to be good for Democrats, but already saying if you don't pass his uh, his election, nationalizing election reform, the John Lewis bill, he's really got doubt about the 2022 election. And I was stunned by this, like many others, because he just well, we watched Donald Trump be vilified. Because he cast doubt on the 2020 elections, Jen Psaki tried to clarify cut eight. President Biden said the midterm elections, um, quote, easily could be illegitimate. Is he predetermining that the uh, the November elections are going to be suspect? Well, I talked to the president about this last night uh, and this morning. Uh, He was not intending to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the 2020 election. He was actually attempting to make the opposite point, which is that in 2020, uh, despite COVID, despite many attempts to suppress the vote, a record number of voters, Democrats and Republicans, independents too, turned out in the face of a pandemic and election officials made sure they could vote and have those votes counted. He was also explaining that the results would be illegitimate if states do what the former president asked them to do in more than a half a dozen states. And I'm not sure what that is. Throw out, she claimed throw out ballots. So what about the walk back? Well, it's interesting because you have seen a couple of Democrats, high-profile folks, come out um, and say, listen, I wouldn't have chosen those words. I don't think it's, you know— a good idea to be casting doubt on the integrity of elections, but you have others doubling down, like the vice president, like Congressman Clyburn. So you got to think through where the Democrats are going with this long term. More importantly, you should ask them, what's in the bill that's going to help people who are now being disenfranchised from being able to vote? When you look at things like voter ID, I think the last AP polling on this, it was well into the 70s that people think it's a good idea. And when you break it down, because we're often told this is about trying to stop minorities from being able to vote, I think it was 69% of African-American voters say that they favor voter ID. And when you look at non-white minorities – it was into the 80s. So people are for things like voter ID. So that's incongruent with the message of a lot of these um, you know, folks on the Hill who want to push this election overhaul and say, you're stopping people from voting. I mean, here in D.C., where I live uh, and work, you can't go to a restaurant now without ID and a Vax card, but you can vote without your ID. And for a lot of people, that just doesn't line up. Right. Uh, what's going to be what's going to be fascinating uh, and dumbfounding is that there are going to be places that say you cannot go indoors without a vaccine, mm-hmm. and and one of those places indoors is voting. So you'll show your ID to get in, but once you're in, you do not have to show ID to vote. Right. And that that's where we're at in this country. Lastly, I'm starting a one man mission to pull a Boris Johnson. And not have a bring-your-own-party <laughs> under the radar. That's a different story, which got him in trouble. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But that would I'm allowed to have a, a beer party. I was I've been told by management. Oh, so, good. Good. Yeah, and I think you could come. But Shannon, how do you I feel mean, about? I mean, I'm underage, but right, sure. Yeah, that's true. But I would not ask for ID in okay. in this new lawless land that we live. I was wondering if you will support me in doing a UK forget all mandates, forget all mass mandates. We're on our own. Would you support me in that? Listen, I think now that Omicron shows that it evades just about everything, and the CDC numbers that came out this week that showed people with prior infection did better than the vaccinated against Delta, which I'm stunned that they would say such a thing, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of support for that, for people making their own responsible decisions, getting Mm -hmm. rid of the vax passports and the mandates. And all of my mom friends will say hallelujah on you getting rid of the masks for kids. So I think you're going to have a lot of support. Maybe kill me 2024. Maybe. Uh, I already have a platform that is take it off. That'll and congrats be it. on your new show, my friend. Oh, thank because you. Because you didn't have enough to do. Right. Uh, 8 o'clock on Saturdays. We're working on a name. Should have it soon. Um, Fox News at Night, Taken. True. Women of the Bible, Taken. Which, yes, I, I feel like, well, maybe go with Men of the Bible, 8 p.m. Saturdays. Right. Joining me now <laughs> with Brian Kilme. And right. Moses. Are there men in the Bible? <laughs> Heck yeah. Thank you. Shannon, uh, is it true you're against me getting this show? Against what? You're, is it true you're against me no, getting this No, heck no, because I was like, the man is lazy. Uh, we need to give him something to do to, uh, to uh, earn that enormous paycheck that requires several wheelbarrows to pick up every weekend. So I think the management um, team, that they knew that you needed some punishment, and that included additional weekend work. I have direct deposit. Thank you. Mm. Well, let's save the wheelbarrows. Right. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much, uh, Shannon, for your lukewarm endorsement. No, can I say one more thing? Yes. Um, I'm going to be on Fox News Sunday, this Sunday. Are you hosting? I am hosting this Sunday, and so check your local listings. We've got Christy Nome locked in. Today is the March for Life, and she's proposing some very restrictive abortion laws in South Dakota. Um, Plenty of critics of that as we await the Supreme Court's big decision on that. We've got new polling for you, uh, and we've got a Democratic uh, senator who we will lock in shortly, and then I can name them as well. We'll see you Sunday. What if I name the senator? Will you tell me I'm getting close? I cannot. Mm. I don't want to blow it. All right. We're locking it in. It's going to happen. But I'm going to watch okay, Fox I'll News Sunday. Sunday. All right. Go get him, Shannon. Congratulations on that. Uh, back in a moment with your calls. And then at the bottom of the hour, we uh, turn over to Pete Hegseth and we move this story forward. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's already making excuses for why he's going to lose in November. And, Pete, that's what this is all about. Democrats don't accept elections that they don't win. I mean, it happened in 2000. It happened in 2004. It happened in 2016. Now it's going to be 2022. I mean, if Joe Biden thought that his party was going to win these elections, then all would be fine. But he thinks, and because the polls suggest... He's going to lose them. His party's going to lose them, the House and the Senate, and therefore they're illegitimate. I mean, it's it's dangerous. It's wrong. It's ridiculous. And everybody knows it's ridiculous. And yet there he is out there saying it. It is. And it's hurting the process. And I feel the same way about President Trump. I don't want to hear about the 2020 elections. It's done. But to think that we don't remember that Stacey Abrams never conceded and that Hillary Clinton spent four years telling the saying the president was illegitimate. But to her credit, she responded to the request from Barack Obama on election night and conceded the election. She lost. And now we find out she basically funded the whole Russia head fake, uh, which has not gotten back to her yet, which now we understand. If you look at last week's reporting that she might even be considered uh, running. And I saw this poll. It's stunning. Twenty eight percent of Democrats want Joe Biden to run again. Twenty eight. 
Leslie listening over in Virginia. Hey, Leslie. Hey, uh, good afternoon. Listen, I, I actually had a few things I wanted to talk to you about, but it seems like you're talking now about, um, you know, voter suppression and yep. um, that Freedom to Vote Act. And I, I wanted to say, you know, I think we've reached a point now in our country. Uh, we've got uh, in the last few months, we've had 34 bills that have been passed in 19 states since the 2020 election uh, that are all about restricting the vote, restricting access to the ballot. Now, here's the thing. I think as a nation, our leaders need to make a choice. Either they're going to preserve our democracy and thereby protect our voting rights or or protect the voting rights. Well, a couple of things. They're not restricting. What they're doing is going to life without the pandemic, no longer drive through voting, drop boxes, but not everywhere because they need to secure them. And although 46 states have had, uh, uh, you have some states that have res- had, that have uh, well, put in new rules, you have other states that have loosened up their rules. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Starting about five years ago, I announced on my radio show, and this is important, this came from North Carolina, that teachers were told uh, in elementary school, do not refer to your students ever as boys and girls, only as students. Boys and girls implies that all of your students are either a boy or a girl. There may be those who identify with neither. It's not even a transgender issue. It's a non-binary issue, to use their terms. Now, 20 years ago, if a teacher said to any students, men give birth, men menstruate, every student and parent would think this teacher is psychotic. You can indoctrinate anything if you repeat it enough. And that's what uh, the Miseducation of America is all about. That was part of a part five. Of course, that's Dennis Prager. You recognize the voice. He's part of the smartest men in America. Uh, certainly one of the most well-read. Uh, but Pete Hegseth's got this series, and he had a summit yesterday live, and it's now posted on Fox Nation. But he's got a series out called Miseducation in America, and he joins us now as he gets set to host Fox and Friends weekend after hosting primetime all week. Pete, congratulations on this. Well, thanks, brother. You've had so many great series uh, on Fox Nation and that that draw on history. You do the history thing better than anybody. And what we tried to do in this piece is give some of the history and the context of how we got to the point where what Dennis Prager is talking about is happening in North Carolina, or parents in Loudoun County are having to protest about critical race theory the school is denying. Those ideas didn't just pop up out of nowhere, out of a vacuum, suddenly, oh, let's be radical. They were seeds planted 100 years ago and slowly but surely implemented throughout the pipeline of the education uh, industrial complex. And so today we're seeing it full force. Uh, and parents are wondering, what can we do about it? And that final episode that you mentioned is meant to provide some solutions to parents. So what did you discover when you took on this project? It started a while ago. This was no overnight project. No, it wasn't. It got delayed a couple times because of COVID stuff and then timing things. But we've been working on it for over a year, dozens of interviews crisscrossing the country, a lot of original research. I uh, worked a lot with David Goodwin, who's the uh, president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools, which is a model of education that's completely opposite of the, the mainstream progressive model, which is in all of our public schools, most of our private schools, and even most of our Christian schools. And you had to you had to answer the why question. I mean, the 
first time, the only way you can admit, the only way you can start to recover is by admitting you have a problem, and you have to understand the depth of the problem. So, where did the idea of school come from? Uh, where did the idea of, you know, mandatory school come from? Where did the idea of removing God from the schools come from? Where did the idea of the pledge come from? Uh, how did they get the progressive model of education going from Horace Mann to John Dewey? Uh, what did they remove? What did they add? What was critical theory before it was critical race theory and critical gender theory? Where did it come from? Why did it land at Columbia University, which is the most significant teacher's college in America? Where did the unions come from? They weren't always radical leftists. In fact, they used to be conservative teacher associations. So when you start to break down the actual history behind education, you realize it's far more insidious and far deeper, which means just protesting at a school board meeting is not going to get it done. They're, it's like charging a fortified machine gun nest with Nerf guns. They're going to brush it aside and say, we control all the commanding heights. So a comeback for patriotic and Christian and conservative parents uh, requires an even more radical reorientation of how we educate our kids. So, uh, and, and you have the summit as well as the series. And the thing is, it's personal for you because you got young kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of you, you've, you've educated your kids, and, and, and thank goodness uh, they came out as, as wonderful human beings and Americans and citizens. But there are so many parents who see their kids graduate high school, or if I had a dollar for every parent that said I sent a conservative kid off to college and came back a Bernie Sanders supporter, I'd be a rich man. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful, well-intentioned parents who just don't realize how much indoctrination is happening, not just in college, but in high school and middle school. And so, yes, this was a personal project for me as a parent of seven school-age kids, not some of which I have in classical Christian schools, not all of them, but we want to get them all in. Just in the belief that I don't want to, I don't want to feel like as a parent, Brian, I'm sending my kids to Democrat camp eight hours a day, <laughs> yeah. and then I have to deprogram them when they come home. Absolutely, I, I want a school that reinforces our values. And when you talk about history, uh, the number one book in the country right now, because the New York Times doesn't move it, is the 1619 Project. They released it a few years ago, and all these problems. Next thing you know, it's part of the curriculum, so you can't really laugh off and say, "Well." Very few people read the New York Times in this country that's going to get indoctrinated. It's part of a curriculum that weaves in with Black Lives Matter. Here's what Dennis Prager told you about 1619. Yes, it's a lie. The 1619 Project is a lie. It's not a matter of, well, we have a difference of view. I don't mind differences of view. This is not a different view. This is a lie. The American Revolution was not fought in order to sustain slavery. That's just a lie. Your kids are being taught lies. They're indoctrinated, not educated. Right, and and that's always concerned him. He's got his Prager University uh, there. And mm -hmm. do you think that, Pete, that seeing Loudoun County and what happened in Virginia and seeing the election results, that things might have might be on the road to change? I hope so. I really do. Education, education choice specifically, the dollars following the parents, is something that Republicans have not seized on enough. I don't know for what reason. They, the teachers' unions are in, totally in bed with the Democrats. are coming after you either way. Now's the moment where parents should be empowered to, let their, to vote with their feet with their kids and have the dollars follow them, which means public institutions have to compete for those students as customers. Education choice, A number one. I mean, I, I also think a lot of parents are just reconsidering. It used to be 95% of Americans sent their kids to public or government schools. Today, that's 90%. I know that's only 5%. But that's a, over a million, million and a half kids who have been pulled out of the public system in the last couple of years during COVID-19 for reasons of masking and 
mandates, but also for reasons of radicalism in the 1619 Project. So there is a hope, and I hope our leaders draw on the inspiration of these parents and try to do something about giving parents choice. The other uh, area, Pete, I know you're going to be talking about this this weekend and tonight, is what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, reportedly, they are so convinced the invasion will happen, and I've heard this in December, that lawmakers were coming back saying they're braced for invasion of Ukraine. They think it's going to be a nine-month war. And right now, they even have armaments in Belarus because they use the Russian troops to to put down those people that wanted their vote counted, and they left that brutal autocrat in power. So he, the question is, what is this administration prepared to go to do? Here's what Jen Psaki uh, said about what is going on and what they expect at the administration. Cut 12. We've seen the president's statement, the tweets, and, and your statement last night. Has there been any communication directly to Ukrainian officials um, to address any of their concerns that they had after the press conference? We have been in touch at a high level uh, with Ukrainian officials and leaders. Um, as you may know, uh, Secretary of State has been in Europe. Uh, he was meeting with Ukrainian officials a couple of days ago, European uh, leaders earlier today, and he's meeting uh, with his Russian counterpart tomorrow. Uh, so we have been in touch at a high level. Uh, they certainly understand uh, from those conversations uh, what the president meant. So they've been in touch. We've given armaments. We gave the Baltic states permission to share the weapons that they bought from us with them. How do you see this playing out? What do you think our role should be? Uh, first of all, I think we're talking weak and we're going to be weak. Uh, if I'm, That's the calculation that Vladimir Putin is making. Um, and he also believes that NATO is effectively going to bark but not bite. And so he thinks that he can endure the sanctions that are coming. Uh, I with this administration at the helm, don't expect much. And, and frankly, you know, I'm a little offended by the, 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 um, the assertion that we should spend half of our press conference on Ukraine and talking about how maybe a minor incursion might be okay, which is, which is a huge slip of the tongue for the president of the United States to say. Yet, he, yet what about the major invasion that's happening on our southern border, millions of people, and no one asks him about it, and he doesn't do anything about it? Uh, it, it so I think there are a lot of people that feel like there's a major disconnect, and it sort of dampens down the interest in throwing down the gauntlet on a border in Ukraine when we can't even police our own border. But at the same, but I mean, Putin smells weakness and he's going to go for it. And and Ukraine has some armaments and and has one of the toughest militaries, certainly in Eastern Europe and, and throughout Europe. But it can't withstand a full-on onslaught from the Russians. And if they if they get to Ukraine, they are uh, an economic power. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what it is. And plus, they'll have all that uh, all that coastline. They'll have a massive insurgency on their hand, though. Too. I mean, Putin knows. There, there's, an, there's a level at which attempting to occupy deeper into Ukraine creates probably more problems than it, uh, than it provides opportunities. So I, I don't think it will be a full-on invasion and occupation of the entire Ukraine, but it will be, you know, he's, he wants to grab land and energy, food, like you talked about, resources, and, and that's certainly what he's focused on. Right. Uh, he is not risk-adverse, and no. my, my hope is he gets burned. Uh, Pete, thanks so much. We watched you over the weekend. What do you have tonight? Uh, what do we have tonight? We are, it is, it is, by the way, Brian, congratulations on the new show. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Congratulations. 
uh, and and you did a phenomenal job on primetime. Uh, I'm putting Fox News primetime to bed tonight, uh, <laughs> Brian. Uh, the last episode, we'll be, ta- we'll, be, we'll be previewing the fifth series of uh, Miseducation of America. Some, some big guests, I'm sure, will be talking about Russia and Ukraine. We'll be talking about education. And, uh, and again, congratulations. Nobody hey, more thank deserved. you very much. Uh, 8 o'clock on Saturdays. Now, do you think we'll have a reunion every year in a Christmas party with all the past hosts from Tammy <laughs> Bruce to me to you to Will Kane to Lawrence Jones? We thought about having sort of like a, a dozen box tonight and just going around the <laughs> ah, horn with ah, everybody to ah. have their final thoughts. Right. We'll see. Well, you did a great job. Phone, Brian. You did a great job, too. And I'm going to be downloading this series this weekend on Fox Nation uh, it is the miseducation in America. I just don't know anyone that is not in some way uh, linked to this very topic, whether you're grandparents yeah. or you're a kid in school. Pete Hegseth, totally thanks right. so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, when we come back, I finish up to f- finish up with this statement. I need to know more. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. How much do you value your football days and who you are today? Oh, the, the football days made me who I am. In what way? I'm very disciplined. Uh, you'll never, you've never seen me uh, have a picture in the paper of a DUI. You don't see me hanging out at clubs. You don't see me drinking. You don't, I'm very disciplined. And that was Meatloaf in one of the many interviews I've had with him. He passed away at 74 last night. I think it's uh, TMZ's reporting is from the COVID virus. That is what they are reporting. Wow, unbelievable! Uh, but he would. Uh, I mean, the the numbers he's his name is uh, was real name was Marvin Lee Aday, born in nineteen forty seven in Texas. Uh, his "Bad Out of Hell" album, I thought it was seventy six, actually nineteen seventy seven. Uh, he sold forty three million copies. When you actually bought albums, let alone all the downloads and money that came to him after, uh, he was also said that he always felt when he was a singer, he was Acting, where a lot of people are singing and say, that's the real them. He says, no. He goes, that was a performance. Uh, he said, I feel like I was the Robert De Niro of music. But just sad. Just a very nice guy, approachable, didn't mind talking about his career and, and how it was so hard to replicate that 1970 success. Let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. Real quick, I didn't, you know, this happened during our show. Louis Anderson dies at 68 years old. Uh, the comedian said to have passed away in Las Vegas. It happened uh, today. He entered his hospital early this week for a treatment for uh, large B-cell lymphoma, a form of cancer. Um, that's according to his publicist. No indication yet as to when Anderson was diagnosed. But he was big for a while. He was one of the top comedians. No, definitely. I mean, it's just a sad day overall for, you know. Uh, for comedians, singers, it's one of those days. Let's hope right. no one else yeah, passes a lot of, away. Too many people are dying that we know. Next, Pete Davidson and Colin Jost uh, bought an old Staten Island ferry boat. Uh, the, the SNL stars uh, say that Pete Davidson and Jost are behind the mysterious purchase of this auction uh, of the John F. Kennedy decommissioned ferry boat. The pair in a partnership with the real estate broker and comedy club owner, Paul Italia, spent 280000 to purchase the boat. Um... They spoke exclusively to the New York Post and said the trio had grand plans for the vessel. The idea is to turn the space into a live entertainment event, space with comedy, music, etc. We're in the early stages, but everybody involved had the same ambition. So we'll see how that goes. Right. I think it sounds like something different and could be innovative and fun. And, you know, you would also do like 
the rotation. Who's Pete Davidson's girlfriend this month, and exactly. they could be the feature. And maybe he'll have all of them on, and is there enough room on the boat? Because he has a lot of girlfriends. That's a good question. All right, the other thing is, it's pandemic-friendly. So, oh, you don't want me in the comedy clubs? You don't want me on stage? I'm going to go out on my huge ferry, and I'm going to bring 250 of my friends who happen to have tickets. And, I mean, the, the upstairs, right? It's open air. You can probably open windows to have the airflow more, rent it out for private events. Right. So you support this. I think it's very exciting. I like I Who like did Colin Jost marry? Um, Scarlett Johansson. Do you think Scarlett's on board with this, or do you think this creates friction in their relationship? I'm sure she is on board. Eric, do you believe that uh, Charlotte uh, is Scarlet. on board? Oh, Scarlett, yeah, is on board? Most likely on board. Right. Get it on board. I understand. Got it. Next. Peloton's having some problems. They delay the opening of a $400 million factory as demand tanks. Uh, you know how, how high their stock was going, right? Peloton's delaying this opening. Uh, Peloton's warehouse and delivery centers have had their hours cut to 20 hours per week. Uh, the news comes as Peloton plans to temporarily hold production of the bike. I feel bad. I was on it last night. It lives up to the hype. The instructors are all great. But I guess now that we have choices, a lot of people going back to gyms or just getting fat. Or the people that love spinning already have the bikes or the treadmills. And how many people are there to really purchase right. it? We, they maxed out. Could be. Right. Uh, next, ESPN announced it will not send reporters to the Beijing Olympics. So let's get this straight. No broadcasters from NBC. No Journalists from ESPN, quote, with the pandemic continuing to be a global threat and with the COVID-19 related on-site restrictions placed for the Olympics, there will be no, the coverage will be too challenging. I mean, it's unbelievable what the, the restrictions are doing. If you, if you cut test positive 21 days, if you are quarantined for 21 days, you can't compete. I mean, I think it's very, COVID's very convenient for China here, right? To sort of keep everyone out so that they're not going to report on anything. Yeah, they don't let the Chinese citizens go. But they're going to let outsiders go? I mean... I don't think they're... They're not letting outsiders No, I don't wow. think so. So it's like Japan two years ago. Yeah, basically. Next. No, I don't like this story. I, this whole transgender stuff. Uh, FBI director, the Texas Synagogue hostage taking a, uh, is taking an act... Uh, the FBI director says the Texas Synagogue hostage taking is an act of terrorism targeting the Jewish community. This shouldn't have taken five days for him to say, but originally they said there's no proof that uh, the role of uh, Judaism played a role there. Christopher Ray, who just tries to be politically correct, is a, is a massive disappointment. Said this was not a random occurrence. We know what happened. The gunman came in, demanded the release of an Al-Qaeda, female Al-Qaeda operative, in prison in Fort Worth. Ends up, they got out and he got killed. Please admit that this is terror-related. Unbelievable. The fact, I agree, it's, it's really pathetic. The fact it's even in a more to know, like it should be headlines everywhere, but there's so many other things going on. Next. Speaker Pelosi says she's now open to stock training bans for Congress after she already made a zillion dollars. Quote, I do come down always in favor of trusting our members. If the impression that is given by some that someday is doing some insider training, that's a Justice Department issue and there's no place in any of this to give a blanket attitude of we can't do this or we can't do that. She says, I just don't buy into that. But if members want to do that, I'm okay with it. She's made a million dollars. Now think about this. If you're a Speaker of the House, you know if you're cracking down on tech. You know if we're going to be coming down with sanctions on China. There's so many things that they legislate that have everything to do with stocks. Um, my goodness, you get to see where the GDP is heading, what policy is going to be implicated. We have a, uh, we're going to be able to get this passed. We're not going to be able to get this passed. I, don't even, I can't even believe this was happening. No, I totally agree with you. And then not even just to do with stocks, but they're also getting lobbied all the time. So they know what companies, you know, are truly financially 
invested, even if it's not as so obvious from the stock market. Right. Hey, uh, thanks so much for listening. Go to BrianKillMe.com, order any of my books. Also, I hope to see you on Saturday night with a brand new show. Soon I'll have a name and I'll share it with you. Saturday at 8 on Fox News Channel. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.